Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about book three, chapter 14. In this chapter, Tolstoy didn't recount the battle details from the perspective of one of the characters, but instead used a more objective narration. Why do you think he did this? Is there anyone who can comment on the historical action, oh, sorry, in the historical accuracy of this chapter? Did Tolstoy intend for these chapters to be an accurate retelling of the Battle of Austerlitz? Um... I thought the cool thing about this chapter was that we got to see Napoleon as a character. Uh, I think that was our first glimpse of him as a character. Ripster 66 says, Moving from the character's point of view, the small, fast-spinning cogs, to a broader narration of the entire machinery at once sort of heightens the tension. We can see how this massive movement of troops is a terrible blunder, while the soldiers and commanders have yet to see it over the fog. How apt the Russians and Germans bumbling about <clears throat> without seeing what is right in front of them. Quite poetic. That Napoleon is above them all and can see everything definitely does not bode well for our Russian friends. How can he see through the cloud of fog, though? Wouldn't he still be blinded to troop movement and only see a low-lying cloud? I'm willing to suspend belief for the beautiful metaphor it creates. <clears throat> I think from inside the fog it's probably more difficult to see but from outside of it, you can see things moving within it. Potentially? Warren Kavofi said, <coughs> Things are not off to a good start for the Austrians and Russians. Lack of coordination, bickering, annoyance, and all-around drop in morale. Not exactly how I'd want to begin a battle. To make things even worse, they literally and figuratively can't even see where they are going in all this. All while Napoleon watches before striking these unsuspecting troops. This seems to be an enormous disadvantage, to put it mildly. As far as why Tolstoy implied a multitude of perspectives, I would have to guess it's to show the scope of this army and how exhausting and difficult it must be to stay coordinated. It also seemed to show how contagious the moods of the army as a whole can be, while they seemed ready and eager at the start of the march. By the time they begin descending down the hill, many have become uninterested. <coughs> Ripsy 66 says, Ah, thanks, the imagery wasn't working for me, so Napoleon can see them descend into the fog and yet they can't see him up on the hill yikes a perfect trap Hick Efekova said my edition has a map of the area at the beginning of the book I wonder if that's there in every edition or just in mine I was trying to work out the positions of movements of Kutuzov, Rostov and Napoleon on the map that's cool that it has a map um, I've looked it up well not for this fight but for the previous one on the, what was the river called? The Danube, or and the, well, whatever it was called. Um, I was able to find those spots on, like, Google Maps. So that was kind of cool. The Qureshi says, can we watch BBC episode one yet? Yeah, I think you can. Um, I actually don't remember, but I think you probably can. You'll, um... You'll know as well, like if it gets to the point, because it goes pretty much in the same order as the book. So, you know, if, if it starts to seem like maybe something's happening that you're not up to yet, you can always pause it. And I think even if, you know, you're not going to spoil the whole book by watching episode one, even if it does go a little bit further than you've read, it's only going to go, you know, a couple of chapters further. So I reckon you probably can. But no one has actually answered that, and I can't remember, so... Maybe fairly safe to say yes. 
If I'm wrong, the damage isn't too bad. Let's put it that way. All right, we need to read the next chapter. Do I have it open? Yes, I do. Uh, this will be the Maud translation, because again, I didn't get to translate it. goes like this. At 8 o'clock, Kutuzov rode to Pratson at the head of the fourth column, Milodorovich's, the one that was to take the place of Presbytersuski's and Langeron's columns, which had already gone down into the valley. He greeted the men of the foremost regiment and gave them the order to march, thereby indicating that he intended to lead that column himself. When he had reached the village of Pratson, he halted. Prince Andrew was behind, among the immense number forming the commander-in-chief's suite. He was in a state of suppressed excitement and irritation, though controlledly calm as a man is at the approach of a long-awaited moment. He was firmly convinced that this was the day of his Toulon, or his Bridge of Arcola. How it would come, he did not know, but he felt sure it would do so. The locality and the position of our troops were known to him as far as they could be known to anyone in our army. His own strategic plan, which obviously could not now be carried out, was forgotten. Now, entering into Weyrother's plan, Prince Andre considered possible contingencies and formed new projects such as might call for his rapidity of perception and decision. To the left, down below in the mist, the musketry fire of unseen forces could be heard. It was there Prince Andre thought the fight would concentrate. There we shall encounter difficulties, and there, thought he, I shall be sent with a brigade or division, and there, standard in hand, I shall go forward and break whatever is in front of me. He could not look calmly at the standards of the passing battalions. Seeing them, he kept thinking, that may be the very standard with which I shall lead the army. In the morning, all that was left of the night mist on the heights was a hoar frost, now turning to dew, but in the valleys it still lay like a milk-white sea. Nothing was visible in the valley to the left into which our troops had descended, and from whence came the sounds of firing. Above the heights was the dark, clear sky, and to the right the vast orb of the sun. In front, far off on the farther shore of that sea of mist, some wooded hills were discernible, and it was there the enemy probably was. For something could be descried. On the right, the guards were entering the misty region, with the sound of hoofs and wheels, and now and then a gleam of bayonets. To the left beyond the village, similar masses of cavalry came up and dis disappeared into the sea of mist. In front and behind moved infantry. The commander-in-chief was standing at the end of the village, letting the troops pass by him. That morning Kutuzov seemed worn and irritable. The infantry passing before him came to a halt without any command being given, apparently obstructed by something in front. Do order them to form into battalion columns and go around the village, he said angrily to the general who had ridden up. Don't you understand, Your Excellency, my dear sir, that you must not defile through narrow village streets when we are marching against the enemy? I intended to reform from beyond the village, Your Excellency, answered the general. Kutuzov laughed bitterly. You'll make a fine thing of it, deploying inside of the enemy, very fine. The enemy is still far away, Your Excellency, according to the dispositions. The dispositions, exclaimed Kutuzov bitterly, who told you that? Kindly do as you're ordered. Yes, sir. My dear fellow, Nesvitsky whispered to Prince Andrew, the old man is as surly as a dog. An Austrian officer in a white uniform with green plumes in his hat galloped up to Kutuzov and asked in the emperor's name, had the fourth column advanced into action? 
Kutuzov turned round without answering, and his eye happened to fall upon Prince Andrei, who was beside him. Seeing him, Kutuzov male- Kutuzov's malevolent and caustic expression softened, as if admitting that what was being done was not his adjutant's fault, and still no answering the Austrian adjutant. He addressed Volkonsky. Go, my dear fellow, and see whether the third division has passed the village. Tell it to stop and wait my orders. Hardly had Prince Andre started than he had stopped him. And ask whether sharpshooters have been posted, he added. What are they doing? What are they doing? he murmured to himself, still not replying to the Austrian. Prince Andre galloped off to execute the order. Overtaking the battalions that continued to advance, he stopped the third division and convinced himself that there really were no sharpshooters in front of our columns. The colonel at the head of the regiment was much surprised at the commander-in-chief's order to throw out skirmishes. He had felt perfectly sure that there were other troops in front of him and that the enemy must be at least six miles away. There was really nothing to be seen in front except a barren descent hidden by dense mist. Having given orders in the commander-in-chief's name to rectify this omission, Prince Andre galloped back. Kutuzov still in the same place, his stout body resting heavily in the saddle with his lassitude of age, sat, yawning wearily with closed eyes. The troops were no longer moving, but stood with the butts of their muskets on the ground. All right, all right, he said to Prince Andre, and turned to a general who, watch in hand, was saying it was time they started, as all the left flank columns had already descended. Plenty of time, Your Excellency, muttered Kutuzov in the midst of a yawn. Plenty of time, he repeated. Just at the distance behind Kutuzov was heard the sound of regiments saluting, and this sound rapidly became nearer along the whole extended line of the advancing Russian columns. Evidently, the person they were greeting was riding quickly. When the soldiers of the regiment in front of which Kutuzov was standing began to shout, he rode a little to one side and looked round with a frown. Along the road from Pratzen galloped what looked like a squadron of horsemen in various uniforms. Two of them rode side by side in front at a full gallop. One in a black uniform with white plumes in his hat rode a bobtailed chestnut horse. The other, who was in a white uniform, rode a black one. These were the two emperors, followed by their suites. Kutuzov, affecting the manners of an old soldier at the front, gave the command attention and rode up to the emperors with a salute. His whole appearance and manner were suddenly transformed. He put on the air of a subordinate who obeys without reasoning. With an affectation of respect, which evidently struck Alexander unpleasantly, he rode up and saluted. This unpleasant impression merely flitted over the young and happy face of the emperor, like a cloud of haze across the clear sky, and vanished. After his illness, he looked rather thinner that day than on the field of Olbutz, where Bolkonsky had seen him for the first time abroad. But there was still the same bewitching combination of majesty and mildness in his fine grey eyes, and on his delicate lips the same capacity for varying expression and the same prevalent appearance of good-hearted innocent youth. At the Olmutz review he had seemed more majestic. Here and he seemed brighter and more energetic. He was slightly flushed after galloping two miles, and reining in his horse he sighed restfully and looked round at the faces of his suite, young and animated as his own. Ksatorsky, Novosiltev, Prince Volkonsky, Stroganov, and the others, all richly dressed gay young men on splendid, well-groomed, fresh, only slightly heated horses, exchanging remarks and smiling, had stopped behind the Emperor. The Emperor Francis, a rosy, long-faced young man, sat very erect on his handsome black horse, looking about him in a leisurely and preoccupied manner. 
He beckoned to one of his white adjutants and asked him something. Most likely, he is asking at what o'clock they started, thought Prince Andre, watching his old acquaintance with a smile he could not repress as he recalled his reception at Brunn. In the Emperor's suite, where the, the picked young orderly officers of the guard and line regiments, Russian and Austrian, among them were grooms leading the Tsar's beautiful relay horses, covered with embroidered cloths. As when a window is opened and a whiff of fresh air from the fields enters a stuffy room, so a whiff of youthfulness, energy and confidence of success reached Kutuzov's cheerless staff with the galloping advent of all these brilliant young men. Why aren't you beginning, Mikhail Irolinovich? said the Emperor Alexander hurriedly to Kutuzov, glancing courteously at the same time at the Emperor Francis. I'm waiting, Your Majesty, answered Kutuzov, bending forward respectfully. The Emperor, frowning slightly, bent his ear forward as if he had not quite heard. Wait, Your Majesty, repeated Kutuzov. Prince Andre noted that Kutuzov's upper lip twitched unnaturally as he said the word waiting. Sorry, waiting, Your Majesty. Not all the columns have formed up yet, Your Majesty. The Tsar heard, but obviously did not like the reply. He shrugged his rather round shoulders and glanced at Novosiltev, who was near him, as if complaining of Kutuzov. You know, Mikhail Ilarionovich, we are not on the Empress's field, where a parade does not begin till all the troops are assembled, said the Tsar, with another glance at the Emperor Francis, as if inviting him, if not to join in, at least to listen to what he was saying. But the Emperor Francis continued to look about him and did not listen. That is just why I did not begin, sire, said Kutuzov in a resounding voice, apparently to preclude the possibility of not being heard, of not being heard, and again something in his face twitched. That is just why I did not begin, sire, because we are not on parade and not on the Empress's field, said he clearly and distinctly. In the Emperor's suite all exchanged rapid looks that expressed dissatisfaction and reproach. Older he may be, he should not, he certainly should not speak like that, their glances seemed to say. The Tsar looked intently and observantly in Kutuzov's eyes, waiting to hear whether he would say anything more, but Kutuzov, with respectfully bowed head, seemed also to be waiting. The silence lasted for about a minute. However, if you command it, Your Majesty, said Kutuzov, lifting his head and again assuming his former tone of dull or unreasoning but submissive general. He touched his horse, and having called Miladorovich, the commander of the column, gave him the order to advance. The troops again began to move, and two battalions of the Novgorod and one of the Asfersron regiment went forward past the emperor. As this Apsheron battalion marched by, the red-faced Miladorovich, without his great coat, with his orders on his breast and an enormous tuft of plumes in his cocked hat worn on the side, with its corners front and back, galloped strenuously forward, and with a dashing salute reined in his horse before the emperor. God be with you, general, said the emperor. Ma fossier nos ferons, qui sera dans notre possibilité, sir, he answered gaily. Indeed, sir, we shall do everything it is possible to do. Raising no, nevertheless ironic smiles among the gentlemen of the Tsar's suite by his poor French. Miladorovich wheeled his horse sharply and stationed himself a little behind the Emperor. The Apsheron men, excited by the Tsar's presence, passed in step before the Emperors and their suites at a bold, brisk pace. 
Lads, shouted Miladorovich in a loud, self-confident and cheery voice, obviously so elated by the sound of firing, by the prospect of battle, and by the sight of the gallant Apsherons, his comrades in Suvorov's time, now passing so gallantly before the emperors that he forgot the sovereign's presence. Lads, it's not the first village you've had to take, cried he. Glad to do our best, shouted the soldiers. The emperor's horse started at a sudden cry. This horse had, that had carried the sovereign at reviews in Russia bore him also here on the field of Austerlitz, enduring the heedless blows of his left foot and pricking its ears at the sound of shots, just as it had done on the emperor's field, empress's field. Not understanding the significance of the firing, nor of the nearness of the front of the Emperor Francis's black cob, sorry, Emperor Francis's black cob, nor of all that was being said, thought, and felt that day by its rider. The Emperor turned with a smile to one of his followers and made a remark to him, pointing to the gallant Apsherons. Alright, there we go, another chapter done. That was a bit of a longie. Alright, have your say about that one on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. See ya tomorrow.